Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dice and Dachshunds. I'm Matthew. And I'm Diana. And as usual, Mikey and Buddy are here in the room with us. Mikey is currently stretched out along Diana's lap with his feet dangling off the end. Dachshunds are long. Buddy is curled up on the couch. Sorry, this is a little late. Yeah, we're sorry about the long, unplanned, unexplained hiatus, but we're back now. And we've been playing board games, and we've got plenty to talk about. All right. I've been playing a game on the Xbox One called Hand of Fate. I think it's also available on the PlayStation 4 and on Steam. And it is a digital card game, sort of a digital deck builder crossed with a roguelike video game, where you are playing against this mysterious dealer and you start with a deck of cards that include various encounters and another deck that includes equipment and the dealer also will introduce some cards of his own based on which of the scenarios you're playing. Cards will be shuffled and the encounter cards will be laid out in a sort of pathway, think of it like a dungeon map. And you'll move a token from card to card, and as you reach each card, you'll flip it up. It has this beautiful sort of woodblock artwork for the cards that's really nice. And you'll be given some sort of choice. It could be a shop where you can go in and buy things. It could be a moral decision. Do you do this or do you do this? It could be an encounter with enemies. If you pick something that has a chance of failure, he will deal four cards, which are some combination of success, massive success, failure, and massive failure. Depending on the task that you're undertaking, like climbing down a slippery canyon to see what weapon a corpse is gripping down at the bottom, there may, for example, be two successes and two failures. So you have a 50-50 chance of succeeding, and he'll shuffle the cards in front of you for easier tasks, you can actually follow the cards. He'll show you the cards, he'll flip them over, and then you can follow them with your eyes as he shuffles them, which further increases your chance of success. And if you're doing something that involves climbing or sneaking or that sort of thing, if your character is wearing heavier armor, then that can affect the number of good cards or bad cards that go into that four-card mix. If you get into an encounter with enemies, he'll deal the enemies out in front of you, and at that point, the game will switch from a card game into a fairly simplistic third-person action RPG kind of brawler type. The combat is very simplistic. You have attack, dodge, counterattack, and a couple of magical abilities depending on what equipment you might be carrying. That doesn't sound especially simplistic to me. No. It's a lot of fun. I recommend it. I... One concern I have is that I think I'm three scenarios from the end of the game. There are two bosses left in his cabinet. And the difficulty went from easy, pretty easy, getting a little dicey, but just fine, to rage quit inducing. I had not died prior to this scenario, and now I have died something like 25 times in a row. So that's a pretty serious difficulty spike that's not, not great. Better than that, I recommend the game. 
So the uh, the other digital game, the one that I've been playing with Matthew, the only one of these digital games I've been uh, playing, is called Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes. It is a hybrid game in that one person is at a computer or wearing a VR headset and they can see a bomb. It looks kind of like a briefcase. It has a bunch of different modules. And then the other player or other players has a packet or can be looking at a PDF on a screen, but what's important is that they can't see the screen that the person looking at the computer or wearing the VR headset can see. What they have is the bomb defusing manual. And so the, the gameplay consists of the bomb diffuser describing what they're seeing accurately and following instructions precisely, and the experts, the ones um, reading the packet, uh, communicating clearly and calmly and efficiently talking them through diffusing all the different kinds of modules. There's ones with wires and ones with buttons and ones with word games and ones where you're supposed to remember things, and we've played the first couple of bombs and play a couple and then switch and it's it's really intense and immersive and there's just nothing on your mind except okay how do I describe this symbol and okay there are four wires are there any yellow ones no are there any white ones there's two you know and from all this information the people with the packet have okay cut the third wire okay what what's next okay let's do the button um, you know, and it's intense and fun. And, you know, if you blow up, bomb counts down and, and you're, you're, you're dead, but it's not, you don't have to go all the way back to the beginning of some long story mode or anything. So it's intense, but not rage quit inducing at any point, even if you're having trouble. The modules are procedurally generated. So well, an individual bomb in sort of the campaign mode will have the same sorts of modules every time in terms of difficulty level at least, the next time you play that same bomb, the solutions for each module will be different, and you can complete the modules on a bomb in whatever order you want. As Diana mentioned, some of them, the simpler ones involve conveying to the expert, who's the person with the manual, how many and what types of wires there are so they can tell you which one to cut, or telling them what's on the, the outside of the bomb and what's written on the button and what color the button is so they can tell you whether you should just press the button or hold the button down until a specific number comes up on the timer, all the way to far more complicated modules like one where the person with the bomb has to describe some visual indicators to the expert so the expert can find a maze in the manual so that they can see what the wall layout is. They need to then tell the bomb person that they have the layout so that the bomb person can tell them where on that layout, without being able to see the walls, the starting point and the end point are, because the person with the manual can't see those either. And then the person with the manual has to direct the person with the bomb to press buttons in such a way to move the origin point to the goal point. And it gets more complicated from there. We just haven't played on from that point. There are modules whose sole purpose is to require your attention at key moments while you're working on other modules. So 
it can get quite a bit more difficult. We only blew up once, but then we only went through the first, what, two bombs, four bombs, something like that? I think it was the first six. Might have been. In any case, there, there are more and harder bombs later that we have not gotten to. But I think we only blew up once. And there's a free play mode that's unlocked fairly early where you can tell the game to automatically generate a bomb for you based on specific inputs that you select, like how many modules, how long you want the bomb's timer to be, whether you want those, they're referred to as needy modules that require your attention at specific moments and you can't just permanently turn them off. Yes, it's a computer game, but we felt that it has a really strong real-time cooperative board game feel to it. Mm -hmm. It's a lot like a sort of faster-paced version of, okay, your turn, what do we need to do here in a cooperative game? It's only $15, $16 on Steam. I highly recommend checking it out. We've played several board games. One of my favorites that we finally got around to learning is Uwe Rosenberg's The Hav, which is one of his older designs in the series of worker placement plus feed your people at the end of each round games that he got stuck in uh, Lahav, Agricola, Caverna, or Labora, that sort of thing. He's made several games in similar design lines. Lahav is about running a business in the French port city of the same name, and each turn you move your counter forward on a track, and that tells you what resources you're going to add to the various piles of resources that are on offer. And then you can either send your one worker, you only have, ever have one worker, to a building to perform some task, or you can just take all of the goodies in one particular stack of resources. So for example, I could take all of the fish that are sitting on the dock waiting for somebody to take them, or I could send my worker to the construction office to spend some of the wood and clay that I've collected on previous turns to build the building. At the end of the game, generally speaking, none of the resources you've got left are worth anything unless you were able to ship them off and sell them. It's all based on your cash on hand, and your net worth through buildings that you've either purchased or built over the course of the game. I think in a lot of ways it's a more streamlined, focused engine-building game than, say, Caverna, Rosenberg's other game that we own. And I really like it. It, it really appeals to my love of engine-building. I find it pretty subject to analysis paralysis. My turns, uh, you know, I've only played one full game and then another partial game. And I do feel like hopefully I'd be better at it now. You know, the first game is always, what is this? What's going on? You got to figure out kind of how the engine works and having not seen most of the cards and it's hard to get a feel for it. But I was sitting there going, oh my gosh, you're always thinking, oh, I want to do this and this and this and this. And you've got so little things you can do and you've got to make sure you, be able, you can feed your people. And so I found it sort of difficult to figure out, plus no dwarves. So that's a strike against it in terms of in comparison with Caverna, because, you know, dwarves are the best. But it was fun. Uh, it's quite long. It's got, what, like 20 rounds or something? It actually changes quite a bit depending on the number of players, because 
each round, regardless of how many people are playing, has the same number of turns within it. So a game with three players will have many more rounds than a game with two players because each player is only getting a couple of turns each round, whereas in a two-player game, they'll get many more turns in a round. The number and types of buildings that are available and what order they come out in changes quite a bit, too, with the number of players. There is a short variant in the box. We have not played with that one yet because I like games that give me room to develop. Well, it is long. I think it's longer than Caverna, or at least longer than Caverna. No, you don't think so? I don't think so. Uh, well, at least when you're teaching me, I think it's longer than Caverna, but then I've played a Caverna a few times. I just really like Caverna. Yeah. So, I like Lahav, but not as much as I like Caverna. Uh, another major reason for that might be that Caverna is filled with little wooden creatures and crops and vegetables and everything in Lahav. I guess there's one little wooden ship for each player and a wooden disc for each player, but everything else is cardboard tokens, which I wasn't wild about when we first opened it up, but I think they actually work really well. They're just the right weight. They stack nicely. I don't know. I, I wouldn't I have thought. I don't mind them, but I, I do have a notorious weakness for games with lots of cute little wooden bits. On that note... Shall we segue over to Spirits of the Rice Paddy? A game with many, many cute little wooden bits. There are slugs! Slugs! Yes, little wooden slugs. And weeds. And rocks. I just want little wooden... I guess you couldn't make one that was both a duck and an ox, which is why they went with... (laughs) Which is why they went with the uh, cardboard tokens for those. But man, I want little wooden ducks and oxen. That sounds like something <laughs> out of the Cthulhu mythos. It's a duck ox! The docks? <laughs> ox? Ox? Yeah, my mind went to. So, yes, you have, you have little wooden workers and wooden rocks and wooden slugs and wooden weeds. But unfortunately, the ducks and the oxen are two-sided cardboard chits, although I'll bet we could find little wooden ducks and a little wooden oxen out there somewhere to bling out our copy. There are also little wooden walls and gates and little uh, cardboard rain tokens and several different decks of cards and, and yes, all manner of toys. So we should probably describe the game beyond just the components. Yeah. Well, in Spirits of the Rice Paddy, All of the players are farmers, rice farmers, and you are competing to grow the most rice. So you start out drafting a series of cards that basically let you break the rules in one way or another. And the higher the number of the card, the more powerful it is. But then turn order is determined by the person with the lowest card out goes first, and the cards stay out once they're placed. So playing a high number early in the game can give you a strong advantage, but it puts you down in the turn order, which can be very important because of the rain mechanic. So you each have a board, and they're really cool boards. You have a bunch of hexes on your board, and the edges of the hexes are grooved. It's sort of a two-layer cardboard sort of a thing. And you can use those grooves to place these little wooden pieces 
that are the walls of your patties that you're building out of this one big field that you have. And so then every turn, once it's determined who goes first, the rain card is turned over, and we see how much rain you have that turn. And then there's a sequence of things that you can do with, you assign workers and livestock and things to do things, and then you resolve those things in order. And at a certain point, the water goes out, and then the water comes in. And if you're the first person, you get all the water to start with. You let the water in, any that you can't use goes on to the next person, and then when you let it out, it all flows to the next person. But you're flooding your fields, so some of it is staying in your fields for at least some period of time. And that means that if you're down on the turn order, especially in a game with more than two players, you might be waiting a while for water that you need. So that's sort of the powerful card versus turn order trade-off. Yeah, you have workers to plant fields and harvest fields. Your livestock can haul away rocks or eat the slugs. And then every rain card, in addition to saying how much rain you get, will often also have, and all your fields grow weeds, or every planted field gets a slug, or something like that that you then have to deal with. And the weeds and the slugs decrease your yield when you harvest your field. And there's a graph that says how much a patty of a given size yields. And the person with the most rice at the end wins. So it's sort of a combination card drafting game and very light worker placement game. You only have one type of worker and there are very few places they can go. And they're all going to those places on your own personal board. So there's no jockeying for position with other players' workers. A lot of the back-and-forth player interaction of the game has to do with drafting the cards. These cards are separated into two sets, an early game set and a late game set. And each card represents a favor from a different god. These tend to be very powerful. It's just a question of how powerful they are relative to each other. The most powerful ones have higher numbers, which means that you're lower down in the turn order. And one very unusual and very important to remember thing that this game does is that when you play a high card, as I did on the first turn by playing a 20, the first set of cards goes from 1 to 20. You're not just putting yourself in last place for that turn. The cards typically pay out their benefits every turn once they've been played for the rest of the game. But at the same time, if you play a 20 on the first turn, until the mid-game, there's no possible way that anyone can play a card higher than yours. So with that card, I was getting a free livestock or a free worker every turn, which is huge. But I stuck myself in the back of the pack for the whole first half of the game. On the other hand, Diana played a card her first turn that I think was the one. And that still gave her some, some very good information. She was able to peek at the next turn's rain card. And part of the game scoring is by collecting various achievements over the course of the game. So if you harvest a four hex rice patty on a turn, you can collect the achievement from the center board that's associated with that. And that gives you a certain amount of rice. Well, in addition to letting her 
peek at the next rain card, which is a big advantage, especially if you're going first, that level one card also made it so that she always got a chance to score her achievements before everybody else on the turn. Not only was I going second for the whole first half of the game, but for the entire game, if we qualified for the same achievement on the same turn, as we often did, she would always get first crack at it. So even the weakest card in the deck is quite powerful. And as you get higher up, you can get favors from the gods that let you steal rice from other players every turn, or make it so that you don't need water in your patties to actually grow your rice, or you can harvest your rice without draining the water out of your patties, or you have magical water that comes and goes exactly as you need it whenever you want. As these cards get more powerful, they break the rules of the game more and more, So, which is the definition of a good drafting game, I guess, is that every choice is a good choice. It's picking the right one at any given moment and hoping that the ones you really want that you didn't choose might come back to you so you get a second bite at the apple. There are a lot of sort of little rules that make a big difference in the game, not just on the cards, but things like you don't play a card in the last turn, or just that you do this extra special thing, or, oh, by the way, this this thing that seems fairly obvious, you can't do that. And so... You know, it's one of these things where if you're kind of muddling along on your first game and somebody has the rules and you're kind of reading them as you go along, you might just come up short with, oh my gosh, I can't do that. My whole strategy depended on being able to do that. Matthew was a bit disappointed at some of those. I think you still won, though. I did. Uh, By a lot. Maybe. Not as much as he won by one half by, though. It's like 100 points. Anyway... uh... (laughs) So the takeaway from that is that you do want to teach Spirits of the Rice Patty very carefully. It's really not that complicated of a game, but as Diana said, there are exceptions to the rules at key moments. Once you've sort of explained everything, and you look at the player boards and the center board, they actually contain most of the information you're going to be teaching the players. It's easy to miss if you didn't go over it the first time, or misinterpret, but they do a good job of building in player aids so that once you learn the rules, you have nice reminders in front of you if you know what you're looking at. Yeah, plus, you know, little wooden slugs. Yes. Although I gotta say, those little wooden weeds would be really, really dangerous if you dropped one on the floor and missed it and stepped on it later. They are very spiky. Yeah, tiny wooden caltrops. <laughs> they seriously are. Parents beware. Okay, well, I think that'll probably do it for the reviews today. Is there anything that you're looking forward to playing in the near future? Well, we've been talking a bit about playing Between Two Cities, which does seem very cool. We kind of need a third person to play it because it's, it's really not the kind of thing where we can just kind of have a dummy player and uh, I'm interested in Mission Red Planet. You know, I watched a video about it at some point, but it's been so long at this point that I don't even remember much about it. What about you? And I'd say Mission Red Planet probably requires three players as well. There is a two-player variant in there, but it involves two dummy players. Mm. It just sounds like a huge pain. Uh, (laughs) 
Between Two Cities is from Stonemeyer Games, and it is a relatively light game drafting tiles and building cities with them, sort of like a very light version of Carcassonne. But the key is that you're actually, rather than building one communal city and trying to outmaneuver the people you're playing against, you're building two cities, one in cooperation with the player on your right and one in cooperation with the player on your left. And at the end of the game, your final score is whichever of those two cities scored the least. So you can't just shove all your best stuff into one city. And then Mission Red Planet is sort of an area control game about exploring Mars, and it has kind of a neat steampunk theme to it with numbered cards that take place in different order depending on the card. sort of role selection that involves putting your astronauts on ships before they're ready to leave, switching other people's astronauts around, changing the uh, destination of the rocket, or even possibly blowing up the rocket on the launch pad. So there's a, a lot of trying to manipulate the astronauts before they actually get to Mars and then manipulating them while they're on Mars so that you have control of specific areas at specific moments during one of the scoring phases of the game. In terms of what I'm interested in learning next, I would like to learn Merchants and Marauders. I've flipped through the manual and it looks like it's not that complicated. It has a reputation for being very dense and kind of long, but it looks like the mechanisms themselves might not be too complicated. It is a piracy game, but also a merchant game. It's a little bit of a sandbox. You're sailing around the Caribbean delivering goods or finding people who are delivering goods and taking their goods away from them. And it looks like it could be a lot of fun. Did you want to mention our new party games? Well, we haven't played them yet. But uh, we're having... This is the we-haven't-played-it-yet section of the podcast. I, I suppose that's true. If we talked about all the games we haven't played yet, we'd be here a long time. <laughs> we picked up copies of Spyfall and Codenames, two very well-known, very highly-regarded party games, both with espionage themes, oddly enough, came out in the last year. They were the first real party games that I've picked up. And we haven't had a chance to try them yet. And I'm nervous that everything's going to go horribly wrong and everyone who plays them will end up hating me. But I think that's probably unlikely and hopefully people will have fun. Indeed. All right. I guess it's time to wrap this up. So uh, Mikey is waving goodbye. Uh, (laughs) Good night, everybody. Good night. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, games you'd like to hear our thoughts on or would like us to take a look at, etc., reach out to us at dice and, that's A-N-D, dachshunds at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks. Bye.